Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics they talk? We listen. My guest today is a veteran on today's topic, long before it was commonly on everyone else's lips and agenda. She has had one of the most crucial roles that is needed in business today and is still active in this sector. We continue the automotive series today where we delve into sustainable solutions deployed by corporations, as well as look at some of the outcomes of some of the drastic transitions made to meet the net zero target. We live in interesting times and my guest today is going to elaborate on this. Until August, 2021, Pierre Heider and Mark Cook held the role of Chief Sustainability Officer at Inca Group, the largest IKEA franchisee with 377 stores in 30 markets across the world. She led the sustainability agenda for the Inca businesses within retail and Inca investment. Today, Pierre is a senior advisor, keynote speaker, lecturer, mentor, and a non-executive director within IKEA and still plays a major role to include being a leading voice on the shift to sustainable solutions for businesses internal as well as their external operations. A large part of this role requires Pierre to engage and collaborate with other corporations, governmental bodies and NGOs, as well as sustainable brands. As mentioned, Pierre is a veteran on, the, on this topic of ESG and sustainable outcomes. Since 1996, she has worked, lectured and studied sustainability topics across academic, consultancy and business. She was co-chair of REAP, Retailers Environmental Action Programme, together with being an EU Commission member. She holds a Master's in Environmental Management from the University of Lund and a Master's in International Business Administration and Economics from Uppsala University, Sweden. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Pierre to Heads Talk. Many thanks for being with us today. Hi, thanks a lot, Elaine. Right, um, I'd like to let my listeners know that when we arranged to have this episode of Heads Talk, when you kindly agreed to be on the podcast, you were still, in fact, the Chief Sustainability Officer. So my questions will be in that vein and about your role at the time within the Inca Group. And once again, many thanks for being with us today. Okay, um, we hear a lot of words, hot topic, um, uh, and it's an overused phrase, but really today's hot topic is about climate change and reaching sustainability targets. There is now a sense of um, urgency like never before. Corporations have their goals, countries have their goals. My first question to you is, when did this, or when did the conversation change from viewing sustainable options as something to do in the future to a must do right now? In fact, yesterday would have been better. Mm, Good question, Elaine. Uh, You mean within IKEA or just in general, what I've noticed? In general, in general. General. Um, I think it's been, been, coming and going so there's been um if, if i take a scandinavian outlook yeah because that's mm-hmm. where i'm based mm-hmm. uh we had quite a lot of issues in the 80s um with uh, forest death because of emissions from large factories so and um then there was a lot of dioxines there going into the baltics uh, in the 90s uh, which led to 
the seals are dying. So there was quite a lot of uptake of the environmental party. Uh, and then I would say in 2007, eight uh, with Al Gore and the inconvenient truth, there was also a spur. Um, so there's been at certain points throughout the last 20, 30 years where um, the environmental parties have increased and so in policies and government regulations have increased mm -hmm. and I would say the general public's awareness of the topic has uh, mm -hmm. increased and then you know with 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 media things kind of pop mm -hmm. up and then disappear so then they've disappeared so I've, I've had a few times in my 25 years in sustainability where you feel like wow now now it's moving yeah. now it's going to mm -hmm. happen uh, and then it's faded away but this time I think this um uh, there's um, um i would say almost like um tipping point in the sense that Do we have right. way yeah we have more facts than ever before so we are i would say the first generation to have all the facts on the table and quite a lot of the solutions not all but quite a lot of the solutions needed uh, to move Mm -hmm. The general awareness has gone way beyond uh, any time in history. So it's been more of a smaller group. And, and then I think the, the solutions are more relevant today and they're less of this, uh, if I choose sustainable solutions or more environmentally adapted solutions, I need to make uh, a sacrifice on convenience mm -hmm. or price. Um, you know, the, the first banana, eco bananas, they were like, you know, super tiny and ugly. And, and now they look pretty good. So I think there's a lot of those things convening into a perfect storm right now. And then, of course, the most important is uh, investors. The investors are starting to shift and we're really talking about stranded assets. And that that gives it that extra boost. So this time, I really don't think that we will have a step back. It will be uh, you know, increasing from from here uh, up, and and uh, the mm. the sense of urgency is just much stronger uh, today. But we have fundamentally lost, I would say, twenty five years where science was pretty clear when I went to university already. Yes, and and when and what was IKEA's priority response to this? And what has IKEA achieved to date? Um, apart from the fleet management changes, which we're going to talk about later when what was Ayaka's response mm, I think um, we've also gone through um, evolutions and steps we we started out 20 about 20 25 years ago uh, a lot with the materials and um, quite a strict chemical policy at the time uh, for 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 being at that time and still today a strict chemical policy um, and then we worked a lot in the supply chain. So our first uh, code of conduct for the supply chain uh, was launched in 2000, in the year 2000. Mm -hmm. So it's 21 years of, of working with that. Um, so I think that was um, kind of a, a starting point in really looking at who supplies into us. And we know that the biggest part of our environmental and social footprint sits in the supply chain um, so that was a big part then in end of 2000 or so 2009 something we started to really look at uh, the climate agenda in terms of 
the buildings we own, both shopping centers and, mm -hmm. and, and the blue box, mm -hmm. uh, so the stores, uh, and really looking at what, what can we do. And we decided to actually invest, to own and operate wind parks. And now we also own solar parks. So that, that we have also like, I would say 12 years experience. And we have within the investment arm, uh, a team now working full-time mm -hmm. with our renewable energy investments. So I think those are two achievements. Mm -hmm. And then in the last, it's a bit more than five, but five, six years, it's been a lot more, especially in the retail part, how can we inspire and engage people to live a more healthy and sustainable life? So really looking at not only how we make our offer and where we source our offer from, but really how can we, as the world's largest home furnishing retailer, inspire people through their visits to the store or online or through other communication uh, that we do, uh, inspire to that you can make these and these choices and that actually has a lighter footprint on the planet. Mm -hmm. So that I would say is the, the last few years, continuing what we already have in place, but really accelerating and speeding that up. So how do you sales steer towards products that have a lighter footprint? How do you engage with people? How do you share knowledge and know solutions? So, um, and then also a lot of work on circularity in the last few years, both in the back end, where we're looking at what other materials we're using, how can we use less, how can we use more sustainable, how can we use recycled material, but also looking at the, the end of life and also during life, how can we enable people to take care of the products better, keep them for longer, and then at end of life, can we uh, set up uh, take back schemes, uh, looking at the secondhand market, and we're also testing uh, renting to see can can we retain ownership of the products in IKEA and people rent and when they come back with it, we can refurbish and then re-rent again. So we're looking at a lot of different business models and solutions, uh, which I would say we've done the last five years. That, that sounds amazing. And I, I read somewhere that um, you have more wind parks than stores. Is that true? Yes, yes. We have 540 something uh, wind turbines, so not parks, but wind turbines. And I would say we have around 400 stores today, if I look at the, the, the pace of expansion. Right. Wow. Okay. And, and what is the IKEA Better Living app? Mm. It, uh, it's an app we created a few years ago where we took the know-how in terms of products that we have, but also with solutions of how how can you store your food better? How can you cook uh, in, a, in a more vegetarian or climate smart way um so really looking at solutions in all parts of life at home so you know in the kitchen in the bathroom uh, when you clean all, all those different aspects and also in terms of you know electricity is, is a big or how you heat and cool your home or put the lights on it's a big part of the house so really trying to find um like a fun app where you can kind of log uh, look what you do and then you you get feedback on how many points you have and also more things you can do and also how much you're reducing your footprint right excellent excellent um what you've done in ikea is a a major overall a major business change and culture change in the organization 
and we all know that it's not that easy to to culturally change an organization let's talk um, some more about some of the challenges that were faced by ikea and your team during this transition um there are obviously many but i want to concentrate on mobility and fleet transition as mentioned earlier and for my next question Take my listeners on a journey with, with the change from ICEs, you know, in, uh, internal combustion engines to CO2 neutral vehicles in your fleet. Um, the journey to include from the, the decision to use 100% EVs going forward and the feedback received from the, the business units, drivers, maintenance teams, et cetera. Mm. It's, a, it's a good question. If I, if I take a step back and really look at the, the change management journey, I mean, it, mm. it, it's... Um, it kind of also goes with the evolution of retail. So when we we launched the first people and planet positive strategy in 2012, so that's when we kind of uh, built on the previous year's environmental strategy, but really put social and environment and economic together and built more of a strategy to embrace and engage the business leaders and not just the sustainability team. Uh, and back in 2012, we were mainly... Uh, you know, a, a traditional retailer. So we had um, a supply chain and then uh, lorries driving to the stores and then the customers went to the store and picked up their goods and went home. Uh, and when we started to talk about alternative ways of delivering, uh, the last mile delivery, customer transport, so how do people go come, come and go from the stores? Mm -hmm. That was a very difficult conversation because... The model was everyone goes to the store. And then in the last few years, I mean, retail has gone through a huge transformation. So not just IKEA in general, where, of course, COVID accentuated that. Mm. So from, I'd say, five years ago, a very small percentage of IKEA products were sold online. Uh, it was still there, but relatively small. Mm -hmm. uh, and then during COVID, when we had periods of up to two months where majority of our stores were closed, I mean, 50% of our sales came through e-commerce. Mm -hmm. um, so we see right now um, like a 50% increase in online sales year on year. Um, so the whole, the whole business has shifted and we're also building you know, city center stores, pickup points and the blue boxes and then with the online service. So that whole space that we are operating in has changed. So we are truly a multi multi-channel retailer today mm -hmm. and still on a journey to become even even better and effective and efficient at it. But we are an, a multi-channel retailer. And in that we saw that um, a combination of things. But first of all, it is um a relatively big part of our carbon footprint and the supply chain, how we source products and which materials we use is still the biggest part. It's about 70%, but then about 15%, when you start to look at scope one, two, and three, so you look at really your entire value chain, not just your own operations, then how the goods get to people's home uh, is quite a substantial part of our footprint. Mm. And then we looked at how can we, how can we do that? And one is of course, uh, having our stores closer to people so that we reduce the, 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 the last mile, so to say. But also we saw with online that the last mile delivery, so people actually book online or in the store and want it delivered. That was skyrocketing. And, and we saw that that part of our footprint would just go up if we didn't find a solution. So 
One was insights and understanding and knowledge inside the company that this is a big part of our footprint. We need to do something. At the same time, we started to see quite a lot of legislation and policy action where a lot of cities and mayors were starting to say, by this date, if that's 25 to 30 or 35, uh, we do not want diesel trucks in our city center. And we, of course, have customers in the city center. So how are we going to deliver if our trucks can't get in? So then there was that kind of push. And then at the same time, uh, so the third driver, um, a huge change and movement and advancement in the technology. Um, but when we then set the 2012 strategy, we kept it very light. We started to look into it, but we kept it very light. And then in the 17th strategy, um, so when we made the update five years ago or four years ago, yeah. uh, we that's when we set the goal that 100% of our, our whole last, last mile delivery will be with zero emission vehicles by 2025. Mm-hmm. And we had lots of discussions in the management team and also in my team. Is that too aggressive? Because this is at the time when we launched it, we had zero, mm. uh, zero uh, home delivery with zero emission vehicles, which is mainly electric at this point of time. So it was a, a, a huge bet on the future, but we believed that the future of, of, of small trucks, so to say, needs to be electric or potentially hydrogen, but that's way down the line. And our learnings from moving into renewables with the wind turbines back in 2008, nine mm-hmm. is, yes, it's not perfect at the beginning. I mean, the wind turbines we, we use today and buy today and build mm-hmm. are way better than the ones 10 years ago, way better. But the, the, the change we've seen in that sector and the movement we've seen wouldn't have been possible, I think, not only because of IKEA, because there's many companies and, and governments going into the space, but you need that demand from the business uh, for um, innovation to happen, for efficiencies to happen. And we see the same in, in electric, electric vehicles that we you need to start to send the signals that this is where we want to be. So we set a goal of 100%. We are about 18, 20% today. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see a doubling of the performance, but of course it's still way off uh, to 100%. But I'm sure that if we hadn't set the goal and done all the work that we did connected to the goal, mm-hmm. we, we, wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't have been anywhere close to 20% today. Nice. So, so you feel you're on target, yeah? I would say that we are... If we continue with the efforts, because the hardest part is actually the first few percent, because then no one knows anything what to do. So, I mean, we we need to do competence buildup of our um, procurement team, the ones uh, Mm -hmm. doing the procurement, the, the, I would say, uh, the business teams in the countries where the decisions are being made, because short term, it is more expensive to buy electric. Um, and, and also a complication for us is that we don't have our own fleet. So we, we work with third party. So we need to also work through our procurement teams to really convince them to take that extra cost. Even if you take over, over a lifetime of a vehicle, it, it is actually more and more um, cost neutral today. But we still kind of have financial models looking at the investment cost, uh, the, the uphand cost. Um, and then it is still more expensive for the most part. So 
it is that combination of things um, and, and building that learning uh, that makes it possible. All right. Um, were there, yeah, no, you're still transitioning, you're still, not yep. trying to target, you're still transitioning, but are there, I should say, issues or even greater challenges with this kind of transition in a particular country uh, and why? Mm, absolutely. And, and of course, when you move on both social and environmental topics, I mean, you're, you're in a context and the context is different in each country based on uh, public opinion, um, government policy, um, infrastructure. So working on, if I take this specific case on electric vehicles, is way easier in some countries than in others, uh, or even in some cities compared to others, because it, it's also quite local, uh, locally uh, different. So um, if we take that goal of 100%, we, we set out uh, to have five cities in the world uh, fully electric already by 2020. Mm -hmm. And um, Shanghai in, in, in China actually met that goal a year almost, almost a year earlier than, um, than the goal. And today, 90% of our home delivery in all of China, so all IKEA China, is through uh, electric vehicles. So in China, they, they've just built the infrastructure, made a decision, and the supply is there and, and working with the partners. So that's gone extremely fast. And then we have other countries where there is no infrastructure. Um, there are maybe not um, the right manufacturers uh, in the country to, to really build, to build the vehicles. And, and uh, the mindset among the suppliers of the partners, the service providers we work with, is not really there. So we have countries that require a lot of work to get going, but we are deploying electric vehicles for last mile delivery in 19 out of the 30 countries where we operate. So it is possible, but it is really that at the beginning, you need to bring the relevant parties to the table. So we are working with uh, manufacturers, we're working with Man and Renault to really look at how can we build and together build um, the trucks that we need because we are flat pack business. So it doesn't mean that all the lorries or transport trucks that are on the market really works for our type of business. Mm -hmm. So in Berlin and Paris, we're we're testing and learning together with them. Uh, you need to bring in the procurement team, really looking at and the finance team to really look at what are the barriers, how can we find the space in the, in the books, so to say, to work with the suppliers and with service partners to then maybe pay a bit more uh, the year one and two, because we know that it is more expensive when it's small and at the beginning to then have a heads up and a head start when we think this is gonna be much more mainstream in a few years. Mm. Okay, the, the final question on the fleet uh, management transition, um, what advice would you give to organisations that are contemplating the move to 100% electric vehicle fleet? What did you not know then that you'd like to share with us and, and my listeners and in parallel provide some insights, especially for organisations on the brink of making this move? Mm, good question. What did we not know? I think we we knew um, there were a lot of things we didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we, 
I mean, we knew the general things that um, charging infrastructure is uh, is not there in all countries mm -hmm. or cities. We knew that the financial model with um, the kind of short-term investment uh, cost, um, the here and now cost, so to say, is, is bigger than um, these trucks or, or yeah, in incumbents. Um, so that I think we knew, but how how much work it requires from the organization to really work through with finance to look at the financial models with procurement to really look at how do we set requirements how do we work in a new way uh, and not just go out and buy what's there um, but really put the demands and, and work together with the service providers so that they they dare to buy a fleet because it's not our fleet it's their fleet um, so that whole mindset change and capability shift, uh, I think we, we were not fully clear on how, how much work that would require. So I think to put aside a cross-functional group with procurement, finance and sustainability is critical um, to set clear goals and really build the competence around it. What does it take? Start small. Mm -hmm. build learnings in one or two cities um, and, and work with partners. I mean, we worked with EV100, which is uh, a branch of uh, the climate group, mm -hmm. working with other partners. We're working with manufacturers, so OEMs, to really see this as um, you, you can't do it alone. You really can't do it alone. So you need to work with the relevant partners and then also I think an advice is to to work with insights to to really to really look at your specific business and what is it you need and what is possible for you and then my general and and, and that's why i've been happy working in ikea to, to dare to make a jump because we need companies to dare to be the leaders and the the, the tester and learners mm -hmm. uh, we need to dare to fail um, because the signals we send, if, if put it like this, if everyone is going to sit and wait for the others to move, we simply don't have the time. I mean, we need to get the carbon emissions down by 50% by 2030 globally across everything. Mm -hmm. So we need to move and we need to send signals to governments, to policymakers, to manufacturers, that this is what we want, because when we send that signal, they dare to make the move. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think we need to really dare to jump into something, even though it's not, a, just like any innovation or business model change, it's not, a, it's not an easy walk. You'll have a, you know, a lot of conversations, a um, lot of hurdles, but also a lot of creativity, energy, and pride in the organization because, I mean, everyone reads about climate change uh, and people, mm you know, co-workers or employees, they, they want to contribute. And here you give, give the teams a concrete thing that they can work on in their day-to-day -day operations. Okay. Um, let's look to the, to the future with these next, next set of questions. You've mentioned the 2030 deadline or milestone even, and it's set for many organizations. Um, you've talked about the 2025 um, deadline for, for IKEA to get 100% EV vehicles on the road. But for 2030, what is IKEA's goal for that particular year? 
Mm, um, quite a lot of goals. So um, we work across three pillars. We have health and sustainable living, uh, where we committed to enable and inspire one billion people to live within the planet, uh, the limits of the planet. Mm -hmm. That's a lot around our offer. We're moving on our clean energy um, offer. So we are selling solar panels in 14 markets now. Mm -hmm. We've launched an electricity, renewable electricity subscription model in Sweden. So we're testing that. We're looking into heat pumps. So we're looking at a, a complete uh, clean energy offer for the home. Um, but then also working a lot with uh, water saving products, uh, clean air products, uh, we have committed to by 2025 to have 50% plant-based in our restaurants. Um, so there's a lot of movement uh, on, on that side towards 2030. And I would say the biggest part 2030 is moving towards a circular business model. So we have committed to only using uh, renewable or um, recycled materials. Uh, so that's a big shift. We have committed to uh, test and evaluate all products towards nine circular uh, principles that we have and make sure that they, they have all shifted uh, by, by 2030. And then more in testing and learning right now, but by 2030 also looking at how can we have much more circular offers to customer. Um, so I would say the big shifts from now to 2030 is really executing on, on the food agenda Mm -hmm. and on the circular agenda and then keep the momentum that we have on the climate agenda both in terms of the real estate built business mm -hmm. and the fulfillment so the last night delivery mm -hmm. uh, and then really the social agenda to really continue to work on where we have done a lot already on inequality or equality gender equality but really opening up that whole diversity inclusion much broader mm -hmm. um, we are working a lot with them um, refugees as a consequence of the whole 2015 movement to really how can we uh, enable newly arrived people to have skills training so that we make it easier for them to either stay with IKEA or move on but to have that first step into a job in a new country so that they can make a, a life for themselves and their families mm -hmm. and also changing the narrative around refugees so that's a, a big commitment that we made so I think it's a a lot of things towards 2030 but also really the learning is breaking it down to so in the one-year business plan in the three-year business plan that we have what are the deliverables where will we be in three years because I mean the very few management teams that will be around in 2030 and when you start to make goals to 2050 no one will be there so or hardly anyone so you, you, you can make some big goals or commitments because we know it's going to take a long time for companies or governments uh, to transition. Mm. But we also need to break it down into at least five year periods because otherwise it just becomes blah, blah. And you never get anything done. Yeah. You never get any. Everyone's like, oh, the next management team can, can yeah. deal with this. I don't need to. Just break it down to bite-sized chunks, as I say. So you exactly. can deliver it. Um, my, my next question would have been about um, collaborations, but you, you've touched upon that and you've talked about one of the various groups that you're working with. I mean, do you want to expand on that or should I move to the next question? I can just uh, do a quick one. I think we, we do collaborations on almost every topic we're in. And... Um, 
I think that's a key part of a good sustainability strategy is to really have the starting point that you cannot manage it alone. So you need to identify what other companies are in this space in terms of similar to you that you could maybe go together with. So we've done that with Forest Stewardship Council, with Better Cotton Initiative. We found like-minded companies to go together with us and then finding the NGO that really is good and strong in that space and trusted in that space. Uh, it could be academic institutions, but really building that ecosystem of partners for a specific topic, not generic sustainability, but really like mm. we are in here to solve how we can put uh, only sustainable cotton in, in our offer. Or we are here to really look at electric vehicles. How can we crack that problem? So I think it's 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 working with that ecosystem and, and also working with um, you know small startups. Uh, so we are investing through Inca Investment in in startups that are adjacent to our business where we think we can learn from them or they potentially have a solution that can scale mm -hmm. uh, and become relevant. So I think it's, it's working with that ecosystem of, of things that you have in the toolbox. Are you seeing exciting startups in that space that you're working with or potentially could work with? Oh yeah, I mean, I would say in sustainability, I think it's a, it's a huge innovation area. There's so many interesting companies uh, starting when it comes to circularity, so the whole secondhand mm -hmm. renting market, when it comes to uh, you know, plant-based food, when it comes to food waste solutions using AI and sensors. So the whole, the whole shift the last 10 years with digitalization using, mm -hmm. you know, it's putting smartness into products, uh, looking at AI, looking at, uh, sensors and meters being just in general smarter about things and, and you know being able to look at how people move and transfer being able to crunch big data in a different way and, and, and maybe you know it has a flip side of course but being able to steer through AI uh, where yes. people go that that whole space is a huge enabler for sustainability I would say Unfortunately, a lot of digital innovation goes into just how can we sell even more stuff? Um, <laughs> but uh, there, there's so much potential in using all that Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. beyond Silicon Valley ingenuity mm -hmm. into really doing good. Okay, that, that, yeah, that, that sounds almost like a, another episode or a few episodes <laughs> of Heads Talk to talk about that because I, I really do agree with you in terms of the, the enormity of the, the work that's happening in that space. Um, uh, let's, let's end this episode of Heads Talk and, and, and look at some of the innovations or the innovative solutions within IKEA that perhaps you've not yet mentioned during the course of this discussion. How has this drive, this sustainability drive, aided and enabled the introduction of innovative solutions in IKEA and examples would be great and especially how how were they received by the stakeholders? Mm. I think mixed I think both if I look inside the company and with customers because new things even if everyone says I you know I'm a I'm a leader I, I'm ahead of things I jump on new solutions Mm -hmm. uh, not everyone does so I think it's worth having that kind of uh, perspective that you often have to start small and it 
it takes a while until it picks up. Mm-hmm. The thing is with exponential growth and also with technology adaptation, we do see that things that used to take 10, 15 years to become the norm or, or the normal, it's taking just a year or two. So it goes much, much faster. But um, there is, uh, and then there's this general skepticism around new things. I, I, I mean, I drive an electric car myself mm-hmm. and I notice how many are like, I am, but will there be electricity enough for everyone? Or what about the battery? It's got cobalt and all kinds of minerals and materials in it. Mm-hmm. And it, yes, it does. And, and it's not perfect uh, because there's always, you know, I, I often say you need to choose between pest and cholera or cholera because there's, there's not, there's not one silver bulletproof solution that mm-hmm. is going to save us all. But if we don't develop and test and learn new solutions, mm-hmm. because we know the old ones are not okay, we know we cannot keep running around using fossil fuels yeah. uh, forever. So I would say we need to just get into it. Um, so in general, I wouldn't say that it's just a, you know, hallelujah, let's jump in there. Mm-hmm. but you need to be determined as a company so I think it's that combination of it needs to make my financial sense but it also needs to fit with the goals that you set Um, so when you test and learn you know that you're 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 it's not just about that single product that you're testing it's part of something bigger that you're you're aiming towards Um, and in terms of our product development so in in the in the franchisor part uh, where we do all the supply and product development i mean the majority of the innovation work uh, at least the material innovation work is under the umbrella of sustainability because we need to find more recycled material and more sustainable materials Mm -hmm. and we have identified which materials are low carbon which ones fits in a net zero economy and which ones don't And, and how can we you know, spend these next 10 years really finding the solutions so that we are, we are there in nine years. Um, I, I, while you were talking, I was just thinking that when, you know, you have uh, criticisms of the solutions that you've come up with, and I think it's a case of changing one's mindset and yes. know that the solutions are evolving. Yes, they may, the batteries are not perfect, but that is evolving. And who knows in three or four years time, it will be even more, a better version, but come with us on this journey. We need to make a move. So I think, I think that's, that's the message that should really get through rather than the criticism of the solution, but the fact that the solutions are evolving. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, we've got a lot of work to do, Pierre, haven't we? Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> we do. Let's hope we get it done um, sometime soon. Pierre Hyde, Mark Cook, many thanks for your time and insights. Thanks a lot, Elaine. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.